Has anybody ever had a really bad experience with a boyfriend or a girlfriend? I mean, like horror story worthy, like, like just, just very, very difficult. Thankfully, I didn't have a lot of girlfriends before I got married to my wife, Karen, and I am thankful for that. Um, there was a girl one time that I really liked. I would even go so far as to say I was infatuated with her, and we would often eat together at the same lunch spot, and I would often try to talk to her. But you know that deal when other people are sitting at the table with you, and so you're trying to get their attention and trying to communicate and connect and, and, and get her to understand you know, how I felt. And when lunch was done, we would often work together as a table to clean up. And, and sometimes I would grab the broom and the dustpan and I would actually crawl under the table to sweep up the crumbs under the table that we had, had made during, during lunch. I'd get in some strange looks, but I would actually do this. And, and, and I would take the opportunity to actually kiss the feet, kiss the shoes of Patty Zayner, my first grade crush. It was a way to get her attention. Right, because back then in elementary school, kids would you once a week you'd either be a wiper or a sweeper. You'd have to wipe the table or sweep the crumbs. I don't think nowadays they make kids do that anymore. But that's what we did in elementary school at Warren Elementary. And I took the opportunity to display my infatuation, to make a fool of myself, to try to get her to realize how I felt. Of course, it it didn't work out. It didn't work out. I never got her to fall in love with me. I never won her over. But look, here's the deal. We're going to be in Judges chapter 16 this morning. You say, what in the world does that have to do with Judges chapter 16? Well, it might be a little bit of a stretch, but we're, we're going to read Samson's vain attempts to gain the love of a woman, a woman that he was infatuated with, the infamous Delilah, right? And Samson is going to act in ways that are completely foolish, totally illogical, self-destructive, far beyond crawling under the table and, and kissing the feet of your first grade crush, right? Samson is, is engulfed. He's infatuated. Judges 16 is the story of Samson's downfall. And at first it appears that Delilah is the villain of the story, but, but I think we'll come to see that really Samson is his own worst enemy. If you're with us last week, we looked at Samson's rise to power. How the angel of the Lord appeared to his mom and dad and said that, that they were going to have a miraculous son, that he would live with a special vow, a Nazarite vow, drink no wine, touch no dead, never cut his hair as a way to dedicate himself to the Lord. And while he was God's chosen deliverer, we quickly saw last week that he was filled with pride, with selfishness, with anger, with rage, and we, and we began to think, really, is this the guy that, that the Lord's going to use to deliver his people from the Philistines. And yet we also saw that God filled him with the Holy Spirit, filled him with, with supernatural feats of strength, and he eventually does conquer the Philistines. He eventually rises to be judge of Israel for 20 years. And we saw last week in chapter 13, 14, and 15 that the Spirit of the Lord, mentioned four different times, came upon Samson, empowering him for his feats. But as we read chapter 16 today, you're not going to hear anything about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson. This is the story of his tragic fall. He's on his own. Yet even in his tragedy, God will triumph. So we're going to pick up and, and read all of chapter 16 this morning in three different sections. Let me pray for us and we will dive into the Word of God. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is living and active. It, it comes to us with authority and it speaks to us with power. And we pray now in the midst of our own tragedies, in the midst of our own relational brokenness, in the midst of our own battles with sin, in the midst of, of the world around us, 
that is running from you seemingly as fast as possible, we pray that in this hour you would speak. In this moment, you would come to us. That your Holy Spirit would speak through my words, that you would fill our ears to hear the word of God, to be challenged and encouraged with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of our true deliverer. And so we pray together as a community in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Judges chapter 16, the word of God in verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. Now, now we're going to stop there now. The, chapter 16 opens with this brief little story that I think is a transition story between his, his rise and his fall. We see on display the physical strength of Samson, but also the great spiritual weakness, right? He goes to Philistine territory to fulfill his lustful urges. He visits a prostitute, and, and this is not only sinful, but I mean, this is brazen, right? He's walking into enemy territory, surrounding himself with enemies, sinning in the face of God. This is brazen, blatant sin, and it should be no surprise that these people prepare an ambush for Samson. It's been 20 years of Samson battling them, defeating them, unable to overcome his strength. And now they see this is their chance to kill the great leader of Israel. So they hope to surprise him at the city gates in the morning when he, when he walks home from his, his night of sin. But instead, Samson catches wind of this. He leaves in the middle of the night. He catches them off guard. He rips the huge city gates right out of the ground, the, the poles, the foundation at all. He throws them on his back, and he hikes 40 miles back to Hebron, to, to Israelite territory, just throwing his defeat and throwing the vulnerability of the city, which now has no gates in their face. And, and again, we see that Samson is really a picture of Israel. Right? Samson, on the one hand, is driven by lust and idolatry and worldly pleasure, and yet he is strengthened and protected by God. And, and, and we see sort of the tension, right, in Samson's life, which is, which is really displaying the tension in the nation of Israel at that time. Their sin, and yet their favor, protection by the power of God, at, at least for now. But we'll read that it, it will not go on. So we pick up in verse 4. And we see how Samson's pride and his lust eventually lead him into Delilah's seductive trap. Listen to this account. Some of you may, may know it, but hear again with fresh ears this story. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the Lord of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the Lord of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he, and he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. 
So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say to me, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come upon him again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shekels. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. All right, you guys want to take a few minutes and figure out what this means? Okay. So for the third time in the book of Judges, we read that Samson has fallen for or has given himself to a Philistine woman. And we don't know. Maybe there's some physical characteristics of the Philistines that Samson was attracted to. Or maybe it's just sheer rebellion he knows. The Mosaic law says to only marry within the faith of Israel. Maybe he's just rebelling against God, being impulsive. But what's interesting is that while he's been with two other Philistine women, he even married one of them. This time, the text says that Samson loved Delilah. Now, honestly, when I read the story, I, I think of Samson as sort of a, a shallow, selfish, impulsive guy. I'm not really sure what love really meant to him. But that's what the text describes it. Regardless of how deep his love really was, he wanted her. He wanted her, and he was willing to do any and everything he could to get her. Samson stays with Delilah when he visits. They are clearly together sexually. And the Philistine leaders see this as an opportunity, an opportunity to take down Samson. And so they go to Delilah, they bribe her <clears throat> with silver. And Delilah, a lot, a lot of money, 1,100 pieces of silver from each of the lords of, of the Philistines. And, and her allegiance is with her nation. Despite the fact that she's with Samson, her allegiance is to her, her nation. And, and, and she agrees to seduce Samson, to entice, entice Samson into telling her the source of his great strength. 
Now, of course, it doesn't require much imagination. We can read between the lines and realize that the tactic, tactics Delilah is going to use to entice Samson are, are pretty, pretty clear. She's going to use Samson's sexual desire, his love for her, to get what she wants out of him, to get paid, and to serve the Philistines. So Samson and Delilah go through three different times this little song and dance, right? And, and she says to him, what's the secret strength the source of your strength. And, and without, seemingly without much coercion, Samson tells her, of course he's lying, but he says, well, if my enemies bind me up, you know, with seven fresh strings from a bow, I'll be as weak as any other man. I won't be able to break free. And, and then the Philistines, you know, can take me down. Of course, that's not true. She asks him again. The second time he says, well, no, it's actually, you know, fresh, fresh ropes. Of course, that's not true. She asks him again. He, he tells, him, tells her again, comes up with another lie, and says, well, actually, what you need to do is weave my hair into seven braids and bind them up real tight with a pin, and, and then I won't be able to get out. Now, look, this happens three different times. Each time, Delilah is hiding Philistine assassins in her bedroom. She binds him up as instructed. Each time, she yells out, warning him, Samson, the Philistines are here. Each time, he, he easily breaks out of the trap, and the Philistines can't get him. Now, I don't know how much time had passed. Was it the next night, a couple days, a couple weeks? You sort of think, like, what is Samson doing? Why does he keep agreeing to this? Why does Delilah keep believing him? Why do the Philistines keep hiding in the bedroom waiting for, for Samson to be overpowered? It, it seems a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? Delilah, of course, knows that she's being lied to, and she's, she's pleading with him. Why are you mocking me? Why are you lying to me? Don't you really love me? Each time Samson gives in to the ploy, makes up another lie, right? Trying to keep her happy, trying to, to get what he wants, trying to get his love, her love. Now, what, what is going on here? What, why is this happening? Is Samson really that stupid? Like, does he not realize what's going on? I don't think Samson's stupid. I really don't. It's easy to figure out the motivation of Delilah and the Philistines, right? I mean, they're desperate. It's been 20 years of their inability to conquer Samson. Him, him battling them, defeating them, having his way with them, reigning over Israel. They're willing to try whatever they can. Every time Delilah says, I, I think I've got it this time. I'm going to tie him up this way. They're, they're like, okay, because we've got no other options, right? He ripped down our gates. He killed 1,000 people with a, with a donkey bone. Like, we've got no other options. So the Philistines just go along with it. Delilah, I mean, I think she's probably just driven by greed, maybe some national allegiance, right? But she's willing to keep asking, to keep trying things. Maybe one day the payout will come. But what is Samson's motivation? Why does he keep playing into this? Again, I don't think he's just being duped. I don't think he's forgotten about what happened last time. I think Samson is a pretty savvy guy. I think he knows that time after time Delilah is working with the Philistines, after all, each time Delilah asks him, how does he respond? If they bind me up this way, I think he knows what's going on. And I think he's playing a game. I think he's driven by two separate but related things that are going on. First of all, he's ultimately driven by his lustful cravings, right? He's in love with Delilah, or at the very least in lust with Delilah, and he'll do whatever he can to get with her the philistines hide in the closet if it's playing the game if it's you know trying to get trapped so that he can have one more night with her so that he, he can get with her one more time that's all he can see he he is 
being seduced. He is entrapped. He is blind to how foolish he's being. He's blind to how dangerous the whole situation is. And he's only concerned about one thing, satisfying his sinful cravings. He's only driven by his lust. So what's his motivation? He he just wants Delilah. That's all he can see. That's all he can think about. But the second thing is, I think he's not only driven by lust, I think he's driven by an arrogant overconfidence. Right? See, to him, this whole thing is just a game of cat and mouse, except it's not cat versus mouse. It's cat versus lion, and he's the lion, and he's like, we, we can do this all day long, right? You want, you want to hide the assassins in the closet? No problem, because they'll never be able to take me, and I'm just going to tell you another lie. We'll be together another night, and he just keeps going along with what is Delilah's obvious conspiracy with the enemy. Maybe he even thought, look, each daring spectacle, each time I escape and overpower the fit, maybe that will impress Delilah even more. Maybe eventually I'll win her heart. Maybe she'll love me as much as I love her, and she'll want me as much as I love her. He's, he's just overconfident. He's, he'll play this thing all day long because he does not see it as a threat. See, ultimately, Delilah is not the villain of the story. It's Samson and his sinful heart, his lust for sex, his craving for affection, and his arrogant overconfidence. They are his own worst enemies. We see here both the depths and the complete idiocy of sin. His lust and his arrogance are controlling him. And we read the story and we think, stop, Samson, what are you doing? Right? He can't see it. He's blinded by his own sin. He's powerless. He's caught up in this dangerous cycle. Three different times. The fourth time, he's finally overtaken. The the only way, from a modern perspective, that I can understand and explain Samson is that he's an addict. He's caught in an addictive cycle. He's in love with the very enemy that he needs to overthrow. It's his enemy, but he's in love. And like an addict chasing the next high, he is in total denial about just how dangerous his behavior is. Do you see that? Time after time again. Now look, as a side note, of course we can't you know, overlook the reality that his, his addiction is to his lust and his sexual relationship with Delilah. And of course that's part of the problem with Sex outside of a lifelong committed union of husband and wife, the problem is there's no trust. The problem is there's no commitment. Sex for Samson and Delilah is not something that are, that's shared in a union of two people that are in covenant together, but it's a transaction of two consumers. And Delilah's given Samson the sex that he wants to get what she needs, and Samson is going along with it to get what, what he wants. It's, it's a transaction of two consumers. And see, outside of marriage... Sex easily becomes a source of manipulation where two people just use it to get what they want. And a relationship outside of covenant marriage in Christ is is not filled with security. It's filled with insecurity. And and you're not resting in love. You're not resting in commitment. But but you're trying to earn each other's love. You're trying to to find this this false sense of commitment through a, a good sexual performance. And we see here the destructive nature that it that it brings. And, and I think if we take a step back, that Samson's destructive cycle of craving and his destructive pride is really not that hard for us to understand. 
And I could tell you story after story of men and women that I've ministered to over the years that have gotten sucked into love and lust and infatuation in harmful relationships. And I could see it, and their friends and family could see it, but they couldn't see it, right? I could tell you about a young man passionate about his faith, but in a relationship with a, a non-Christian, convincing himself, well, she'll eventually come around, not seeing that, that it would lead him to undermine his own faith. I could tell you about a single mom dating a young man that was in the grip of heroin addiction, and she's got two, two kids dating this, this man, a heroin addict. Now, I don't... I'm not saying this man doesn't deserve love and, and grace and, and help, but, but she thought through this romantic relationship, she could turn him around, she could bring him around, not realizing the harm and, and, and the danger she was bringing upon her two children. A teen, a teen who heard the gospel, didn't grow up in a Christian home, was, was, was converted, transformed, gave his life to Christ, goes off to college, falls in love with a non-Christian girl who says to him, if you really love me, you'll have sex with me. And he does it, not, not seeing the danger of his own craving and pride. A woman, woman who loved the Lord, married a non-believer, he left her, they divorced. Years later, she fell again for a man who was not a believer. How many of us can identify with these cycles, with these patterns in our own lives, and maybe not that severe, or maybe they, more severe, maybe related to sex, romance, or maybe other things. You may have, have never given yourself to these kind of romantic or, or sexual relationships, but those temptations, those desires, the craving that we face, those harmful cravings, I think we can all too easily identify with, with and they often control us, right? If we, if we want something bad enough, we are willing to forget everything that makes sense. We're willing to forget everything the Lord has taught us. We're willing to ignore everything that our friends and family are telling to us because the thing that we want is all that we can see. And that was Samson's problem. And that's often our problem when we're caught in the cycle of sinful temptation. And in our pride, we minimize what we're doing. In our pride, we think that we are controlling the situation. And so we chase after worldly pleasures or instant gratification. We, we look to food or drugs or alcohol or sex or porn, thinking those things will satisfy us, thinking that they'll fulfill us, thinking that, that we can dabble and it will never grab us by the throat. But sex and, and alcohol, food, drugs, entertainment, whatever it might be, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of sex, the pursuit of, of the affirmation and approval of other people will eventually control us. And you can think you're under control. You can think, well, well yeah, I, I, know I'm, I know I'm a people pleaser at work, but, you know, it, it's, I can manage it. I know I've gotten sucked into a, 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 a cycle of, of comfort you know, with, with junk food and Netflix. I know I'm drinking a, a glass or two more of wine in the evenings that I should. I know I shouldn't be looking at these. You, you think that you can control it. I think I can, but we can't. See, we think we're getting what we want out of the relationship, whether it's a sexual relationship, a physical relationship, a, a, something in the world. We think that we can't be defeated, but the more we give into the game, the more it overtakes us. The, the foolish, illogical, downward spiral that Samson fell into is, is something that is all too common in the human experience. And the more we convince ourselves that we are in control, the more we become powerless. 
Until one day, like Samson, Delilah's pressure just became too much. And like him, we are trapped. Right? Three times this addictive cycle happened. Delilah is, is, is getting sick of being made a fool of, getting sick of being lied to by this man who says he loves her. And he says to, she says to him in verse 15, How can you say you love me when you haven't given me your heart? Won't you confide in me? Just tell me this secret. Prove to me that you love me. Prove to me that I'm your biggest priority. Share everything with me. You've played this game with me three times. You've not told me the truth. Just tell me the truth. Then I'll know that you love me. She pressed him like this for days, the text says, pushing him, nagging him, pleading with him. She finally wore him out, right? He was annoyed, it says, annoyed to death. And Samson gives in. He says in verse 17, I'll tell you everything. I'll tell you the whole truth. I'll tell you exactly where my strength comes from. All about my Nazarite vow. All about my Israelite faith and what the source of my great strength is. It says, from the womb I've never cut my hair. It's a sign of my dedication to God. A sign of, of, of Yahweh's strength. Of Yahweh's power over Israel. Of Yahweh's victory to defeat the Philistines. And if you shave my head, if you cut my hair, God will leave me. My dedication will be ended and my strength will be defeated. I'll become like any other man. Now maybe it's possible Samson was arrogant enough to think he could tell his secret to Delilah. Maybe he thought he could bear his soul, win her love. And maybe he thought he could still hold on to his strength. Maybe he thought somehow in the deception of sin that he could still overpower the Philistines. But honestly, I don't even think he's thinking about what's going to happen when his head is shaved. I don't even think he's thinking about what Delilah is going to do with the information. I don't think he's thinking about the next time the assassins come for him. He's just done. He's at the point of defeat. He's given up. See, Here's, here's the trap that he's in. Delilah means too much to him to walk away, right? But he can't keep lying to her either. He can't walk away from her, but he knows he can't keep lying to, to her. He's just defeated. He can no longer keep fighting, but he also can't bring himself to walk away. And so he just says, I'm done. You win. I've lost. Here's my secret. Let what's going to happen, happen. It's sad, isn't it? Delilah, of course, realizes he's finally told her the truth. He arranged, she arranges things one last time with the Philistines. She gets paid, and that night she gets Samson to fall asleep on her lap. She calls somebody in to shave his head. Which, by the way, all this times, the fourth time this happened, is this guy like a heavy sleeper or what, right? How do you get your head shaved and not wake up? Anyway, uh, maybe she drugged him, I don't know. She, he's asleep on her lap. Somebody comes in, cuts off all his hair. He wakes up. She cries out to him, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are here. Plays the same game. And Samson wakes up not realizing that he's been shaved, that his strength has left him. He thinks he can escape as every other time. Look at verse 20, the saddest line in the whole story. He didn't know that the Lord had left him. He woke up. Didn't realize what his sin had done to him. Didn't realize what this addictive cycle had led him to. Didn't realize that God had left him. And so Samson no longer has the strength, the strength that he had taken for granted, no longer has the presence and the favor of God, the favor that he had, let's be honest, taken for granted. He just assumed, yeah, God, I'm always going to be God's chosen. Because no matter what he had done in the past, and Samson had done some, some seriously messed up stuff, 
but God had always been with him. But not this time. This time the Philistines capture him, they bind him up in shackles, they gouge out his eyes to humiliate him, to incapacitate him, and there he is, humiliated, blind, defenseless, he becomes a slave in the prison mill yard, grinding at the mill like a donkey, the hero of Israel. The hero has fallen. Samson, this anointed judge, this deliverer of Israel, has finally been defeated. Look, we, we've read in these four chapters about Samson's strength. He had always been strong on the outside, but, but his strength on the outside was never enough to overcome the weakness on the inside, the sin of his own heart. Samson had lived with this external dedication to Yahweh, with this Nazarite vow, but he hadn't ever had an internal transformation. His dedication on the outside had never impacted the internal dysfunction, the dysfunction of his heart in his lack of pure faith and obedience. And we read this story, and really it's a parable. It's a parable of the nation of Israel, of their history, of their tragic downward spiral. Again and again, we read in, in the book of Judges that Israel is given into idolatry. Really what the Bible describes as sexual infidelity. To serve another God is to be unfaithful to the God of Israel. It's to, it's to give in to lust. False worship is betrayal. It's spiritual infidelity. And Israel, like Samson, repeatedly falls into this pattern. And like Samson, Israel wrongly assumed that God would always protect them. That God would always get them out of their bind. That he would always send another judge. One commentator said it like this. Samson was intended as a mirror for Israel. In Samson, Israel was to see herself. Samson is a paradigm of Israel. One raised up out of nothing richly gifted, who panders around with other loves, and yet apparently always expects to have Yahweh. So Israel has received grace on top of grace, yet persistently carries on her affairs with Baal, utterly ignorant of her true condition, blithely assuming that all is well and that Yahweh is always at her disposal. She is a people who does not know that Yahweh may depart from her. How sad. How sad Israel and Samson find themselves in that place. Taking God for granted. Assuming that we'll always have God's grace. We'll always have a rescuer. But sadly it's not the case. And as verse 20 said, the Lord had left him. But all hope is not lost. What do we read in verse 22? This odd little line. Samson's hair begins to grow back. And we think, well, yeah. All, I've had a bad haircut. It always grows back, thankfully. Right? Samson's hair wasn't magic. The power that he had came from the Lord. But when he allowed his hair to be cut, he broke his Nazarite vow. He broke his dedication to God and cut himself off from God's blessing, from God's power. And the author of Judges mentions this in verse 22. Mentions that his hair is growing back because he's foreshadowing that just as, as Samson's hair will come back, the Lord's favor and the Lord's salvation will return. And so we read the end of the story. In verse 22, we read of, of Samson's final defeat, his sacrificial death, and ultimately his final triumph. Read with me. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. 
And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And their hearts were merry. They said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one side and his left hand on the other side. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it, so that the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This amazing story. We've seen pictures. We've, we've, we've seen cinematic capturings of it, art of it. Samson, that iconic picture of him between the two pillars, pushing out with all of his strength. What's the setting? The Philistines are gathered for a big victory party, right? It says in the house, it's probably the house of Dagon, probably a temple of worship. Thousands of people praising their God, saying, you've given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. He destroyed our land. He killed so many people. Finally, Dagon has rescued us. Of course, as the readers, we know Dagon's got nothing to do with this. Dagon's a false god. It's only because of Samson's sin, only because, because God has left him. And so the true God, Yahweh, is being mocked. <clears throat> And this false God is getting the glory. And, and, and God in heaven, the true God, will never stand to be mocked. He is going to see that he gets the glory. And so the Philistines call Samson to come in. Why? They want to parade him around. They want to mock him. They, it says they brought him in to entertain them. I, I don't know whether they made him dance. I don't know whether they threw stuff at him. Maybe they had him do like a little muscle show. I don't know. But, but they're, they're mocking him. Right? That's why they didn't kill him. They wanted, they wanted him to be a spectacle to the nation. The place is packed with people. All the lords and the rulers of Philistines are, are, are down low in the house. And there's this large roof, probably with a hole in the middle. 3,000 people gathered on top of the roof, looking down at the spectacle of the enemy of the Philistines. And there's Samson, blind, weak, desperate, helpless, being led in by a guard set between these two pillars. And he finally realizes, after 20 years of ruling Israel, he finally realizes, I can't do this on my own. And so he turns to God. He turns to God and he prays this humble, desperate, I think genuine prayer, Oh Lord God, will you remember me? Remember your servant. Give me strength, God, one more time. And, and he's not demanding, he's not expecting, he probably knows he doesn't deserve it. But he says, God, allow me this one final act of vengeance on the Philistines, your enemies. And despite all of Samson's completely reprehensible faults and failures, he finds faith at the end of his life, faith in the one true God. He trusts. And many of you are asking yourself, yeah, but, but does he deserve, does he even deserve God to answer his prayer? 
Is it right that God would answer his prayer now after all that he's done? Samson put himself in this situation. Why would God answer his prayer? Why would God give Samson strength? He doesn't deserve it. You know what? You're right. He doesn't deserve it. God doesn't answer his prayer because he deserves it. God answers his prayer because he's gracious and God wants the victory and God wants the glory. And he answers Samson's prayer just like he does every one of us based upon his grace. And he acts in our lives. You and I who are sinners, he acts in our lives because of his great mercy, because of his steadfast love, because of his eternal plan to save his people and to glorify himself. Samson does not deserve God's help, and neither do you or I. And so Samson puts his hands on each of those two pillars filled with the power of God one last time and he pushes with all of his weight and he cries out, knowing what's about to happen, let me die with the Philistines. And he cracks those pillars and the temple collapses, and the roof caves in and Samson and all of those that are there die. Right? I mean, Samson's done a lot of amazing things in his life. Killed a lion with his bare hands. Right? Killed a thousand people with a jawbone. Ripped out... I mean, but this final act, I mean, he, he really brought the roof down with this one. <clears throat> okay. Glad you like that. So, um, 20 years, right, he judged Israel. And yet in his death, he killed more people than he ever had victory over in his life. Can you imagine the tribes of Israel retelling this story again and again? And every time they got to the part where somebody would say, and, and Samson pushed on the pillars, and the pillars cracked, And the stone crumbled and the roof caved in. Can you imagine the tribes of Israel cheering and giving glory to God and praising God for his victory over their enemies? As the prophet Zechariah said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And God gives the final blow and God gets the victory. And again, we come back to this reality that Samson is a mirror of the people of Israel. They can see themselves in their sin. But I think Samson also is a reflection of the true deliverer. And we've seen this again and again in the book of Judges, that these flawed deliverers lead us to the one true deliverer. And as we see Samson's sacrificial death, we see a hint, a whisper, a shadow of the Messiah. That centuries later, Jesus would come. Again, like Samson, born through a miraculous birth, raised up to be the savior of God's people. Jesus living a life fully dedicated to God, not just on the outside, but in his heart. Jesus lived not with physical strength, but with the spirit of God. And Jesus, like Samson, would one day be betrayed by a close companion. He would be turned over to the enemy. Jesus would be bound, would be mocked by a godless nation. And they thought that they had the victory. But Jesus, unlike Samson, was doing all of this willingly according to the eternal plan of God. Jesus sacrificed himself so that in his death, the enemy would be crushed. That our enemy of sin, of death, of eternal punishment before a holy God, of Satan himself would be crushed. See, guys, we're no different than Samson. We're no different than the people of Israel. We are caught, each of us, in this desperate cycle of addiction to sin and pride and lust, chasing worldly pleasures, looking for instant gratification, chasing after comfort of the world and the power and the success of the world, looking for the affirmation and the approval of others, thinking we'll find meaning, thinking we'll find hope, thinking it'll cover up our sense of guilt and shame, 
thinking that we'll never be defeated. And yet the more we give into the game, the more it overtakes us. And so we need a deliverer. And so, guys, we land at the same place we've landed so many times before. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. No matter what you're caught in, no matter how many years you've walked in faith, whether you've yet to even see the truth of God, trust in Him today. Put your faith in Him today. Find freedom from your sin. Find forgiveness from your guilt. Know that there is one that has conquered death. There is one that can free you from the sinful cycle that rose up out of the rubble that will give you new life through his resurrection. Friends, as the worship team comes back up, we're going we're to stand in a moment and worship the living God. Be stirred. Be reminded to trust in him, to put faith in him. Don't live in your own power. Live in the power of the Spirit of God. Don't trust in your own abilities. Trust in the accomplished work of Christ who died on the cross, who rose from the dead. Colossians 2 says it this way. And you, friends, that's you and I, we were dead in our trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And yet God made us alive together with Christ having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Amen? Let's stand together and pray and worship. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for the stories of victory that we find in your we thank you for the stories of the Old Testament that call us and remind us and, and cause us to look to Jesus for fulfillment. And we confess this morning our great desperate need for a deliverer. And we rest in Christ and Christ alone. Not in our own strength, not in our own works. And God, we recognize that like Samson, we don't deserve your forgiveness. We don't deserve to have our prayers answered, to be released, to be forgiven, to be empowered. But would you this day, even now as we pray, even now as we sing in worship, would you restore us? Would you heal us? Would you empower us with faith? Strengthen us to walk in obedience. Awaken our hearts. Awaken those of us in this room, those of us listening online. For the first time, grant faith to those who walked in here as unbelievers and grant strength and hope and power to your sons and daughters. Hear our worship. Hear us, Lord.